Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Calvary Life DFW's weekly podcast. We hope that these messages encourage and inspire you in your personal journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Just really appreciate that. I also want to express my appreciation and love for our pastor, Pastor Gwenmar and, and Pastor Yolanda. Yeah, not too long ago. Yes, give him applause. <laughs> not too long ago, a few Sundays back, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I was sitting here in service and I was just overwhelmed by a a sense of gratitude and appreciation for who they are. They are genuine. They are real. They're transparent. They minister from a place of hum- humility, and they love you. They love us. So thank you, Pastor. Thank you. It's an honor to be a privilege to be here with them. And, and Pastors Pete, let me just say this, Pete and Emily, Oh, my goodness, such giftings and anointing that rests on their life, um, and the rest of the pastoral staff, um, all of them, we're just really glad to be a part here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, so when I get done with a page, I'm not reading all of that. It just helps me. I'm not as together on that stuff as they are. <laughs> okay. All right. I, this is the Christmas season, is it not? And uh, we have said, you know, it felt a little, like, different for God to direct us to speak about this topic, to be honest, in shame at this time. But really, when we've, as we've walked through it in the different um, meetings we've already had with it, the services, um, it feels like a great place to be. For a lo- Just think about it. For God to bring us to a place of freedom and uh, deliverance, and be able to start the new year with, with all of that in our, uh, going for us. So greetings and Merry Christmas. I'm just going to read briefly a few uh, pro- prophecies that are in the book of Isaiah that really go along with our topic. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says, the Lord, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us, I know you've heard this verse, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time and forevermore. Then in Isaiah 11, I'm not going to read all that, but uh, there are several verses where it talks about the lineage of Jesus coming through 
uh, King David, his dad Jesse, it mentions Jesse, and coming down through that lineage, and the Messiah, it doesn't say Jesus yet, we're talking about the Messiah, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then in Isaiah, it, it looks ahead in Isaiah 53, it looks all the way, the Messiah has come, and he's now he's on the cross, and he's doing the work that has to be accomplished so that you and I can be reconciled to the Father and we can have all the provisions that the Lord saw that we needed. Just a couple of those verses. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, that's what that means, and carried our sorrows, our pain that we carry. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of peace, for our peace, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And then Isaiah 61, and this is one I'll be coming back to later. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach, preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for their ashes, <laughs> the oil of joy for their mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That I just want to spend a minute on that, the healed part. The heal the brokenhearted. To heal the brokenhearted means that he binds it up. You know, we know what healing is. We, we all like to be healed. But it's supported. It's even governed. That's one of the words that it says about it. It's governed. He brings healing. Broken means crushed. Crushed. Destroyed. Hurt. Quenched. The broken heart. The heart, that word, if you go back to the Hebrew, it means where your feelings and emotions are. It's your will and it's your intellect. It's the very center of all things. It is our very center of us, the inside of us, that inside of us. We are a three-part being. We are spirit, soul, and body. We get spiritually reborn when we meet Jesus. And this is the soulish part is what this is talking about. And then he also provides the healing. In Luke 4, um, Jesus... Uh, had gone back to Nazareth where he, was, where he was raised, and he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the attendant handed him the scroll, and he found the place where it was, Isaiah 61. And he read those scriptures. He read them, he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all eyes were on him. They already knew he was doing stuff that wasn't common to them. So they're waiting. And he says, this day, this 
is fulfilled in your hearing. What that meant was, and if they had any knowledge of the, which they probably did, of, of their uh, books and, and the prophecy, that this is talking about a Messiah that's coming to redeem and to rescue Israel. Jesus is saying, and Christ, really Greek, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. Messiah means the anointed one, the one that's going to come and do all of this. Hallelujah. Pastor Emily laid an amazing foundation for us. Really, it was amazing. Thank you, Emily. And I, she is one I... She's one who hears. I, I really appreciate her worship leading. She listens. She hears what the Holy Spirit is saying, and she flows in it. And, uh, and she heard the Lord, I do believe, and when he wanted us to go through this series, even right here at Christmas time. <laughs> she helped us see the different faces, is what I call it, the different faces, if, if I may call it that, of what shame looks like and how it manifests in our lives. I'm going to spend a little more time on that, and then I'm going to share a testimony. But after that, after I share my testimony, we're going to focus on this answer and the Messiah and what he came to do to rescue us. Now, this was the hardest part I had in preparing for this morning. I had a lot of stuff in my life. (laughs) I just put the journey... I was raised in a very, I'm sorry, Jesus, help me not cry. I was raised in a very dysfunctional home. There were six siblings, three boys, three girls. I'm the second oldest. I'm the oldest girl. And um, my dad was, uh, did I say dysfunctional home? It was dysfunctional. My dad had been raised by... um, just a really rough pioneer back in those days in Oklahoma when they first came and homesteaded in Oklahoma. Um, he and my grandmother lived in a dugout for the first little bit until they built their, they got their land, they homesteaded that and, and then built their stuff. But he was very rough. He, my dad was an alcoholic and when he was drunk, he was rageful. Um, his discipline was harsh. He was brutal. He was a whole lot harder on the boys than he was us. But believe me, we all um, suffered his and experienced his wrath. There were all kind of abuse in our home, and um, not only from my dad, but there was all kind of abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, sexual abuse, poverty. You know, I didn't think about that. And, but poverty, there's embarrassment and shame that goes along with being poor, <laughs> the ones that people have to help. And... Um, which I, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying anything about the people that we help. We want to do that. But there's, there's stuff that they carry because they're in that position. I carried that. There was a pattern in our home that um, there'd be this huge blow up. And it may have been, maybe somebody did something wrong. Maybe they didn't. It didn't matter. Dad was drunk and he was rageful. And so we walked on eggs, eggshells and um, uh, there'd be a big blow up and, all kind of stuff could happen, and then it's over, and everybody goes to bed, and you get up the next morning, and it's like it never happened. It's just all swept under the rug, and nothing was ever resolved. There was never, I'm sorry. There was never, you know, let's, you know, let's work on this. Let's, let's resolve this so it won't happen anymore. Never. We just didn't talk about it, and you knew it was going to happen 
again. The fear and the anger grew inside of all of us, and all of our lives showed it, but it showed it in different ways that we all suffered. In all fairness to Daddy, I do want to say this. When he wasn't drunk, he was, reason- he was more reasonable. We still walked on eggshells because of all the stuff that was inside of him. He was broken. He had never been shown the way how to get out of that. Or, you know, he was not raised in a godly home. And so he was just a broken man. And being an alcoholic and the way it affected him, it was really bad. But I do have some very fond memories of, of Daddy showing his love for me. And, um, and he respect me because, respected me because I was a Christian. Those were when I was getting older. But he did have a respect for me. Not all of the abuse, like I said, came from my dad. My mom had a mental illness, and that presented its own challenges. She loved us dearly, but she was not able to function um, and provide that stabilizing presence that a mother, you want a mother to do and, and what you would expect. And there were times in my mom's, her own depression and and really, she suffered a lot of physical abuse from my dad and um, a lot of physical abuse from my dad. And, and just sometimes in her desperation and her depression and, and all this delusion, the stuff that came from the mental illness, there were some very bizarre and dangerous things that happened to us as children. Um, I was sexually abused from about age, I think it started around five-ish maybe six, all the way through age 14. And for the record, it was not my dad. Let's put that out there. He was a lot of stuff, but he was not that. And uh, we had a family member that lived with us most of my growing up years, and and that was the perpetrator. Uh, I was threatened and told, told not to tell. And as a little child, you know, Anyway, and then even as as I got older, but because of the fear that I lived in and the absolute volatile atmosphere that our home was, I didn't dare share that. For one thing, too, I didn't want anybody to know what stuff was really like at our house, and I didn't want anyone to know who I was, really. It was all something that you hide, like Emily brought out so well for us. You're shamed and I mean, as a child, and maybe even as an adult, if you're not past part of it, you don't even realize it, but you just can't even go there to talk about it. In those days, in, in my growing up, in my sphere, at least in my sphere, even non-Christians really had a respect for the church. I'm older than you guys. <laughs> I, they really did, and my dad did. And when he was home, he wanted the kids He wanted us to go to church. We lived way out in the country. We lived on a farm. We had animals. My brothers milked cows. I made butter. I mean, the whole nine yards. We planted a garden. We canned. We lived off of all of that. But anyway, Dad would take one of us to go to church. Up the road about two miles was a little country Baptist church. And Dad would take us up there, give us all a dime. How did he know we needed to pay, give an offering? I don't know. But he would give us a dime and drop us off. And it was in that little church <laughs> that I started hearing stories about the Lord and about God and, and the other Bible stories that are taught in Sunday school. Thank God for Sunday school and thank God for the Sunday school teachers, those who are working with our kids. 
um, I also had uh, an aunt that was that mentored me. She was the matriarch of our family. She was a powerful, little bitty, spirit-filled Pentecostal preacher. I'm telling you, she could preach it. <laughs> but um, and she was not only a matriarch for our family, but she was a matriarch for the whole town of Ringling, Oklahoma. Seriously. But she was my safe place. And I never shared anything with her because I couldn't. But I would go there and she taught me about the word of God. She literally modeled for me. She showed me what it looked like to know him. Not just know about him, but to know him. And she shared the word and that was planted in my heart. And, and, um, and at that time... Um, I really started becoming, you know, in love with the word. But she was the same wherever you saw her, at home or at church. She was the same. She was authentic. So that made a great impression on me. Like I said, she was my safe place. When I was 10 years old in that little country Baptist church, and I'll try to get this going so I'm not taking, wasting time. But um, when I was 10 years old um, at that little Baptist church, I can, I still have a visual of it. These wooden pews, I'm standing, and I'm not that tall, but I'm standing there. We weren't in children's shirts. They did have children's shirts, but I wasn't in children's church, and the pastor preached about something. I don't know, but the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart, and I ran when he called the altar, ran, and just really, really met the Lord. I met the Lord, and um, that changed everything for me. From that time forward, I knew, even at that age, I had someone that I could tell all that stuff to, someone that I could cry, cry out to. And I remember uh, sitting on the be- my bed, and um, I got a Bible, and I just remember reading the red letters because that's what Jesus said. And during those years, during that time, uh, a love relationship with the Word of God began. He was my friend. I met the Lord there, literally. He just has a child, and it has grown over the years, and now it's my lifeline, the Word of God. Really, I'm, many of you already know that, and you experience it for yourself, but He communes with us. He reveals Himself to us. This is God's Word. Jesus is this Word. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. It's not just words on a page. It is life to us. It is real. It's life. And at that time, and I'm so thankful, but uh, uh, like I said, the relationship with, this, with the word began and, and it just continued throughout. It has continued throughout my life. At age 16, I went to summer camp with Trish, which was Aunt Lois's daughter and we were very close as in age was the reason I was there at her house all, often and I got filled with a baptism of the Holy Spirit yeah yeah I did little Baptist girl <laughs> they called me Baptecostal <laughs> I loved it <laughs> anyway the Lord was pursuing me the Lord pursues you the Lord pursues us he was pursuing me And with every chance that he could, where I could see it, 
He was revealing himself to me. It was amazing. When I got back from camp, it's not in here, but when I got back from camp that summer, I could not wait to go talk to our Baptist pastor. I said, you are not going to believe what I found out in this world. (laughs) Do you know he just let me tell him that? He just did. (laughs) He did. That was awesome. (laughs) I'll never forget it. Anyway, when I was in high school, okay, I'm going too long. When I was in high school, well, after, okay, high school graduation, 16, then when I graduated at 17, that was one of the most depressing times of my life. That night after we graduated, oh, I just wanted to, I didn't know what I was going to do. There had been no discussions about future, nothing about college, nothing, because those kind of talks never happened in our home. And so it was very depressing. We lived way out in the country. Like I said, I did not have a vehicle. Uh, we just had one vehicle. And when dad was gone, so he'd be gone for weeks. Sometimes I'd go find him at the beer joints, leave a note, say, dad, it's time to come home. You know, it, it, anyway, so um, he didn't come home for a week. And he did. I asked him to help me get a car, and he just couldn't. And he really couldn't because there wasn't any money. He drank it all, uh, used it all on alcohol. But I left at 17 years old. I just left. I stayed with family for just for a little while, and one of the members of Aunt Lois's church was gracious enough. that He had three little houses in Ring Lane in the town. Uh, they're like boxes. I'm telling you, just a box. It was one room, and then there was a bathroom. And he, they were all behind the beer joint, which, but he rented me one of those houses for $25 a month. Can't be that. Then Aunt Lois helped me get a car, signed for me to get a car that was $450. I paid that back at $25 a month. My first gas bill, meaning gas inside the house, was 93 cents. (laughs) Oh, Lordy. But <laughs> some of those things you look back now and it's kind of funny. But anyway, it was, it was kind of dark then. I got a job at uh, a pant factory, pant factory, that was in a town there. So I looked it up last night to make sure I was saying the right thing. It's about 40-something miles away from Ringling. There was another family in the church that drove a bus, would go around and pick up people that needed to ride down there. And I, he would pick me up at that little house and... I left when it was dark, and when I got home, it was dark. And those were dark days. I'm 17, turning 18. I did get to go to revivals with Aunt Lois. She would take me along with her every time. But then after that, I got to go to school. The Lord, it's a long story. It's a great story. But I got to go to a Bible college, and uh, I was going to work. And my dad helped me make that first down payment. So, but while I was there, after graduation from there, then I married a musician, a young man. It was not Steve. No, no offense, honey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we were in the ministry, and then we ended up at a church after a few years, we were at a church in uh, Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska. We'd been there about a year, and things were not good. I knew it wasn't good. I just didn't really know what was going on. But one morning after service, I he was leading worship. I was at the piano when it was over. 
worship was over, we went out the back. It was kind of a large church, off the platform, down the hallway to come back in, and an usher met us in the hallway. And he said, so-and-so, which was, I can't remember her name now, it was a lady, a staff member of the church that worked at the church, also the organist, said, she wants to see you in her office. So we went into the office, and there he and I were confronted. She said, I know that you're having an affair with such and such, a young lady in the church who was like a college-age person, also worked at the church, and she said, I have taped your, bugged your office. I have all the evidence I need. And if you do not go to the district and resign immediately, if you don't resign immediately, I'm going to the district. That really wasn't a surprise to me. I knew there was stuff going on, and um, I just didn't know who. <laughs> but um, that was very painful. Um, I stayed with him. We, of course, we had to leave Omaha. We went back to where his folks were, and I stayed until they told me to leave. I had met a young couple before then, but the shame again, hide. They would know who I am. They were God had healed their marriage, and they would were ministers to other couples. But I just called anonymously, and I said, this is going on, and they ministered. I finally did meet them face to face and tell them who I was, but they helped me walk through that time. So I came to Texas, and my cousin Trish had moved to uh, Texas, so I moved in with Trisha and Galen. She had gotten married. And I prayed, and Kent and Drew was helping me, and that couple, and I was praying. I was believing God to heal our marriage. I'm thinking, what about the ministry? You know, I'm thinking, we're both called to the ministry. But it, it didn't happen. He did not come back. Our divorce was final, easy in Nebraska. Then Steve told me now it's easy everywhere, but it was no-fault divorce. And, um, and so it was, it was final on a Christmas Eve. A week later, they were married. And I got up the next morning, and literally, I felt like I had an X on my body. I'm serious. That's like a death sentence to anyone who's called the ministry that especially if you're in the fellowship that we were in over so the church that I was with Trisha I mean she'd already gone to church there and I started going there I was so broken when I got there I'm telling you but they loved me they loved me they let me serve I got to be a part of the worship and had a youth choir and and a lot of stuff but they they loved me through that <clears throat> so for th- about several years three years or so I'm this literally is my life I would take it to work and on a break there was this little cubby hole I interpreted at a um, Eastfield College in Mesquite there was this little booth that was underneath a stairwell. I'd get back there, and I would just cry out to God all by myself. This was, this kept me alive. This, it still is my lifeline. But it, I, I just had to, I just want to emphasize that again. I have said that I wouldn't want to go through that again. I wouldn't want anybody else to go through that. But I would not trade 
for the how my relationship with the Lord and the intimacy of that relationship developed during that time. <laughs> He's amazing. He really is. He's amazing. Then I met Steve. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> and I was smitten. <laughs> but there is one problem. You know what? We're still in that same fellowship. And he was a minister. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So we met at this event, and, um, and then he called, and we went out. And, of course, I told him that I was divorced, and I'm also older than him. <laughs> he knew that already, but I'd had a birthday, <laughs> and I was even older than that. It was kind of, those, kind, those things were kind of funny. But anyway, we finally just decided, okay, we're going to be forever friends. But we were, you know, it was a lot more going on inside of us. And we sought the Lord, and we fasted and prayed, and we had a godly counsel. We went to our pastors, and, and we sought the scriptures. And after all of that, we came to a peace about getting married. And, uh, and we did. We got married. But still, and after we did, Steve takes his license, and he gives it back. So inside of me is this, oh, it's your fault. You've done this. It's your fault. Shame on you. So we stayed in our pastors that we worked. Pastor McCutcheon, he's just amazing. We could have stayed there forever, but he didn't stay there. He left. (laughs) So we had to leave. And we were still in the assemblies. We went down to Bryan College Station, campus pastors at A&M, and did some other stuff. But we saw that there's no, there's some other stuff we went through that was painful with the district. And it was going nowhere. So we sought out other fellowships, and Foursquare is one that has the same doctrine. But they will consider every situation, and they considered ours. And after much consideration and much interview, they welcomed us into the Foursquare Fellowship, which I appreciate. Then we had children, Joshua David and Ashley Brooke, who's with us this morning. And life was a challenge because we're birthing a church. We, we, they sent us, Foursquare sent us to a building that was literally run down. All the pews were pushed together, the ceilings falling in, and it, there were no people, nothing. No salary, nothing, okay? So anyway, it was really hard. We had a few friends that went with us. Uh, we had a, a, a couple and then some friends. Too much of the story. Okay, I'm sorry. He's helping me stay on track. Anyway, it was hard. We were birthing that church. <laughs> <clears throat> then at the age of six, our son Joshua started having symptoms. And then he was diagnosed with uh, cancer. He had a brain tumor, medullo, med, medulla, medulla blastoma. We were devastated, but the condemnation inside of my head never stopped. You shouldn't have married a minister. Talk, talk, talk. Our son was, God, we had some really good things happen with him, and the um, <clears throat> anyway, we did. The doctors called him their model boy, and they would even call and ask us to go make hospital visits because other children that we had met in this whole process were not doing as well. 
but we lost him. Um, the next two years were very difficult. It was just hard. Just hard getting over that. But I felt responsible. I felt like I shouldn't have married Steve and I was being punished. And there were times I was just, all this anger that, let me tell you this about anger. Steve said, I didn't know people could get that angry <laughs> until after we had some times. But all of that was in there. It really was. It was still in there. And so, but anyway, after that, after a couple of years, I think after we lost Josh, my sister next to me made a public accusation. <clears throat> now, she handled the stuff that we went through at home differently than, than I did. She quit high school, but now she has degrees, and she's a school teacher. She's doing awesome. But she quit high school. She had an affair with a married man. She got pregnant. She had a baby. Anyway, she just stuff. She went to a counselor. The counselor said, get away from your family. Don't talk to them. So she was not with us for quite a while. Then after a little bit, she made this public accusation about the perpetrator. And her story mirrored mine. And nobody's believing her except for me. Because it was too much like my story. I, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I hit a wall. I had not even told Steve yet. We've already had kids and lost our son. And I, Steve did not know that I had been through that. But I talked to Steve. And, um, you know... The process started. Be honest with you, that was still under the rug. You just swept it under the rug. You don't talk about it. You don't think about it. It's, you know, it's just there. It's in the past. But when she did that and it came up, I had a meltdown. And the, I had some counseling and it helped some. But I tell you what really helped was this and just being in Jesus' presence. Now, let's talk about strongholds. I want to get back over here now. We're going to be done with that. I do want to say this, that after all said and done, all my siblings love Jesus and serve the Lord. And my dad loved the Lord. Before he died, he got saved. And my mom is in heaven there, too. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments or imaginations or reasonings, this talk, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into the captivity. Have you got that up there? Sam, you rock. Or is it Crystal? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Josh. That's awesome. And bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. Strongholds are first established in our mind. That's the why. That's why we bring every thought into captivity. 
Now, this is a definition that out of one of my kingdom dynamics in my study Bible, I want to just read this to you so I won't get it wrong. Behind every stronghold is a lie, a place of personal bondage where God's word has been subjugated to any unscriptural, unscriptural idea or any personal confused belief that we hold to be true. (laughs) Behind every lie is a fear. And then it says, behind every fear is an idol. I thought that was strange. But remember, if you were here last week, I told you about the fact when I was thinking, I was listening to that video about this one church. Blood of Jesus covers something, but not everything. And I said, I would never think that. And the Holy Spirit said, yes, you do. Because it can't, I'm feeling like it can't cover all this junk that's happened and is in my life. So that was an idol. It's, it's above the provisions that Jesus Christ has given to us. That's what that means. And also, I, I was, just from my own experience, that as we go through life, we're growing up and life happens. And we believe something when life happens. We believe something about ourselves. We don't think about this. I never thought about this in those years. But we believe something about ourselves, we believe something about life, and we believe something about God. We don't know it, but we do. We believe something about God. Okay, now let's talk about our weapons. What are the weapons? How do we pull down this stronghold inside of my mind that has become a belief system? I believe it. Why do I believe it? Because experience tells me it is true. And I don't have the truth of this yet. It's not all set yet. So what I use is God's word. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. And also the blood of the cross, the work that Jesus, when we we talked about that in Isaiah 53, what he came to accomplish, all that he accomplished on the cross, that's one of our weapons. And the other is the name of Jesus. (laughs) Hallelujah. In that casting down every high thing that exalts itself, as I did some reading, and I mentioned this last week, I believe, that that, there's a connotation there. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that is an active opposition. It's, that's demonic. The devil works against us. In Ephesians uh, chapter 6, it says, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our enemy, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. There is an anarchy of demonic power that is set against us. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life and that life more abundantly. Hallelujah. So there, uh, I do want to, as I'm talking about the word, I, I, I didn't give you this scripture Kathy, I apologize, but I want, to, I want to read this really quick. This is something, these are some of the stuff that just, uh, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, you know it, Psalm 91, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Yeah. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him, I will 
trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He'll cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. Listen to this. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. This. This. If you don't, if I don't have this, I don't know the truth. I don't know who is the truth like Emily brought out last week. Jesus, if we don't have this, we do not have a weapon to fight these battles. It is only here. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's another uh, thing that I read in, in, in the Bible. is actually a personal application about Job, and it says this. We understand ourselves and our lives in direct relationship to our understanding of the character and workings of God. Say that again. We understand ourselves and our lives in direct relationship to how we understand God and how he works. When we understand that God's will toward us is good, John 10.10, the devil comes steal and kill and destroy. I've come to give you life and that life more abundantly. When we understand that, when we know that, and that God cares and does communicate his caring to his children, it changes everything. Listen, faith has to have a resting place. Hallelujah. Faith has to have a resting place. If we aren't secure and just deeply grounded in those truths, we're just a sitting duck, sitting duck. That's a little bit of country there. Sitting duck <laughs> for the enemy. Okay. <laughs> John, first, first John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, which is complete, the consummate of soundness, uh, cast out fear. Perfect love will cast out the fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. That verse always bothered me. It always bothered me, but I understand it. That perfect means you're not complete. You're not whole in that. There's still fear in there. We haven't been set free yet. Fear of what? Fear of the lie. People are going to find out who I really am, that I'm worthless. I'm dirty. Yeah. Incapable, undesirable. Inferior, never, never good enough. That's what goes on right back there. And that is torment. That's what that scripture says. Uh, fear brings torment. <clears throat> we may not be consciously processing that, but our experience tells us it is true. Now, I'm going to briefly mention this, but Pastor G preached, preached a message recently that was profound. I will never look at this scripture the same way, Pastor. He was telling us about when the centurion came to Jesus and he had his servant was dying. And Jesus said, I'll come. And he said, no, you can't come. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But you speak the word and my servant will be healed. For, the centurion said, I am a man Likewise, under authority. And I tell someone to go and they go, or I tell them to come and they come. And Jesus marveled. He said, I've not found faith like that in all of Israel. 
that word authority, I, he understood. That's what Pastor G said. It's not so much the faith is that we don't understand the authority that we're under. We don't see. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we have. We don't live there and, and walk in it. And that word for authority is exousia, right, Steve? <laughs> He's helping me. I said eczema last night. <laughs> is that not funny? <laughs> I was afraid I was going to say enema. <laughs> I know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> I'm showing you all of it. <laughs> oh, that exousia, actually what that is, it's the right. It's the capability. It's been delegated from above, and now I can do it. Jesus was delegated. In fact, he says in his scripture, I don't know exactly where it is, but he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he gave it to his disciples. He did. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, he sends them out and he says, you go teach and you preach and you heal. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And do you know this is even better? That... Exousia has never been rescinded. Never been rescinded. John 14, 12 says, If you believe in me and the works that I do, you will do them also. And greater works than these because I'm going to go to the Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, wow. The Word of God is so powerful. God is so powerful. And now I've lost my place. <laughs> we are a people under authority and his name is Jesus we have been given that exousia to heal and to set people free there's just an interesting verse that it's not about the message except that it just really helps me point this out I love this verse Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 24 he was talking about the risen Christ and putting everything's going to be put under his feet. But there's one last thing that has an enemy that has to be put under his feet, and that's death. And, he, and then he's saying, he goes on, and then he says, and then the end comes. When he delivers Jesus, I love this, and then the end comes when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to the Father. And he puts an end to all rule and all authority. I love that. But here's what I say. The end is not yet. Not yet. The end is not yet. That trumpet hasn't sounded. The time of the Gentiles to come to the cross and find Jesus is not over. It is not over. And we have the exousia. And we have the power to heal. Well, like just Jesus said to go out and to do that. And so then when we tie this all the way back to Isaiah 61, where Jesus said, I have come. I've come to heal the brokenhearted. 
the very center of your being that has been destroyed by sin. Maybe your own, but not just your own stuff that people do to you. The very center of you, Jesus said, I'm going to heal it. I've come to set you free. I've come to set you free. So we have that because the end is not yet. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask Emily to come to the piano. We hope this message was impactful to you. If you would like to hear more, please remember to subscribe. For more information, you can visit our pages on both Facebook and Instagram. God bless you and have a great rest of the week.